0: Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we're going to talk about the fear that is dominating the headlines. We have everything from planes, landing, carrying out of province doctors, to stories of a teen dying of COVID, the pictures of haggard ICU nurses desperately trying to keep people alive. Our society is just swimming in a sea of fear. So how should the church respond? These are the questions we're going to consider. And this is our topic of discussion on today's Leadership Now podcast. So Aaron, could you get us started and just explain, how would you address the general fear that the public has about this virus? Well, I would say we we would have a different response
1: if we were physicians, but we're pastors. And so one of the things that the fundamental tool that we have to combat fear in people's lives is, surprise, surprise, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we all know we're going to die one day, whether it's of this virus or a car accident or cancer or heart attack or old age or whatever it might be. We are all headed toward a day of physical death. And yet the gospel puts perspective on all of that. It doesn't help us to you know, like and yearn for physical death, but the gospel is a wonderful message of a generous and benevolent God who, while just and willing to condemn us and damn us for our sins, sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die in our place and our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God. And when we receive the free gift of eternal life, which was purchased with the precious blood of Christ, we have the assurance of eternal life beyond physical death. So the gospel fundamentally needs to be preached into a culture of fear. One of the saddest things we're seeing is people frittering away their lives month after month. We're now into year two. Hunkered down, separated from church, separated from loved ones, canceling weddings, not attending funerals. They're, they're basically wasting their lives in an effort to try to extend it. So fundamentally, I don't want to be uh, you know, so simplistic as to suggest that if we're Christians, we, you know, we step out in front of traffic or we jump into lion's dens and uh, throw ourselves you know, under, the, under the, the bus, so to speak, and um, you know, are, are wasteful or uh, careless with our lives. But the gospel really does help us to see the big picture and the final story, the final chapter of our story. So that would be the fundamental things. The building blocks would be we got to get the gospel. We've got to preach the gospel hard. We need to remind people of resurrection life. It takes the edge off our fear. I would say just some other practical things. We we have a lot of differing opinions among experts. The current medical uh, chief medical officer in our province here in Ontario is pretty hardcore when it comes to lockdowns. The, the one 15, 20 years back who trained him thinks they're kind of ridiculous. So when you're listening to the experts, just keep in mind, it's not just one voice. It's not just one opinion. There's, there's differences of opinion on it. And when we hear differences of opinion, I think that helps us to kind of take the edge off of the angst a little bit, recognizing that there's good people out there that disagree with the, the social narrative and they are quote unquote experts in their area of, 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 uh, specialty. So this isn't just a one-sided narrative, okay? There's there's a, there's a lot of dissenting viewpoints out there. We're thankful for that. I have personal friends that I respect very much who have a ton load of medical training that are not really concerned about this virus to the degree that, you know, your local CBC reporter might be. So that, that would be um, a second thing. The third would be, and we've talked about this before, is having a robust theology, or it could say life view, when it comes to risk and reward, understanding that life is filled with risks and reward. And we don't think about a lot of the risks regularly, because it's not in the news, and we're not being told to avoid them, or we're not constantly hearing a fear narrative. But driving your vehicle can be incredibly risky. You know, there's a there's a percentage of a chance. There's there's a there, there's a um, a percentage of, of a chance that you will die driving your vehicle. Maybe percentage of a chance is a weird way of saying it, but there's there's a possibility that you will uh, die or be injured driving your automobile every time you get behind the wheel. I, I've said this in my previous podcast. I have a brother. I have five siblings. One of them is permanently disabled because of an auto, automotive accident. Mm-hmm. So that's one out of six of us. Um, marriage is risky. You know, when you put yourself in a meaningful covenantal relationship and you lay down your life for another person and you invite them to have, um, say in what you do and speak into your life, if that relationship were to go sour, you could end up in a lot of emotional and even financial pain. But we, we put ourselves in the way of, um, Uh, in a position where we might experience that because of the reward. So we drive in order to enjoy the convenience of getting from place A to uh, place B. We we're married, even though there's, there's, there's potential challenges, potential for pain there, because we want that relationship. We want that sense of affection. Want to be able to have kids, et cetera. Uh, I mean, even something as minor as owning a pet could, uh, you know, expose you to liability if you're, you know, pet, bite somebody and it might cost you some money so it might be a frivolous example but the point is all of life is filled with risk and reward and we have never in this church denied that there's a nasty virus in our country never ever ever have we denied that i do get concerned at times and i hear people say oh it doesn't exist it's fake it's not out there it clearly is i mean let's not be ridiculous it's out there but all the collateral damage we know what it is now do we need to rattle them off again? No. We all know what they are. There's a long list of collateral damages being imposed upon people because of these lockdowns and the fixation on it and all the political opportunism that we're seeing. So the, all I would just encourage people uh, right out of the gates. What tends to help to reduce fear is a robust understanding and acceptance and appropriation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's number one. Secondly, just think bigger. Think beyond the narrative. Think about all of the things that we lose if we continue to lock down, if we continue to fixate. Think about the fact we're putting ourselves in a place of risk and reward all the time. Think about all the collateral damage of fixating on one thing, one threat over and above everything else. So, these these are just some general principles to help people to kind of let me just say chill out a little bit and relax and maybe not take things quite as seriously as they have been for the past year
0: now the media has obviously put this fear in front of us over and over and over again um would you say there's any difference between this type of fear and a fear of the vehicle example you give so a vehicle when i get behind the wheel of a vehicle i have a great degree of control uh i would say anyways of my risk um whereas With the virus, so much is unseen and I can't, I can't gauge, I don't know if I'm sick. There's asymptomatic transmission they talk about. I think that has in some ways created excess fear for people. Uh, Can you speak to that in terms of maybe just drawing comparisons to other things that are like that already that we've lived through? Sure.
1: Yeah. Well, with regard to driving your vehicle, I mean, obviously you can drive for hundreds of thousands of kilometers, never be in an accident. You can drive your entire life for decades, never get hurt. So we we kind of look around us and we think to ourselves, well, yeah, I could get hurt, but I don't know that many people that have. And I've never personally been hurt in a vehicle. So it's, you know, it's probably okay. It's still risky, though. There's every other driver out there could potentially cut you off or hurt you. Um, You know, we had a young girl at the church this morning with her eye all blacked out and a concussion because she got into a car accident recently. Like it actually happens to people. Um, but with regard to the virus, I would say, well, just look around you as well. Like I've said this before, if you shut off the the, the television, shut off the news, stop reading Facebook and Twitter, um, you know, people's Twitter feeds and just step outside. Um, almost, I'm just going to say this, almost no one who's even listening to the sound of my voice now knows anybody that's died of COVID. I know that for a fact. Maybe some of you do. Most of you don't. All of us over the last perhaps several decades, or many of us, I should say, if you're, if you're a little bit older, can identify people we know that have been hurt or killed in car accidents. So I think I think there's a parallel in that we don't hear about the car accidents, so it doesn't scare us. We hear about COVID deaths all the time or the potential there thereof. And so that scares us, but we're looking around us, to put again, just put aside discussions for a moment about asymptomatic transmission and all that kind of thing, or the efficacy of, of vaccines, I would just encourage everyone, just sit back for a moment, take a deep breath, and ask yourself this simple question. How many people do I know? That's question number one. Second question is, how many people do, do I know that have been hospitalized or died from it? Most, for most people, the answer to that is zero. Zero. For some of you, it might be, oh, one, two, three, four people. There's I I doubt there's anyone out there that could honestly say, oh, hundreds of my friends, dozens of my friends. No, it's just, it's just not not happening in the way that we were told it would happen. That's a fact. Okay. I'm not making this up. This is not my own personal opinion. It's a fact. Hundreds and hundreds of people are not dropping dead all around us of COVID-19. It's just not happening. So that's that's helpful. Okay, that's that's a helpful reminder that your chances of dying of COVID nineteen are pretty minimal. Um, statistically, I don't I don't know that this to be the case, but statistically, you might have a greater chance of dying from COVID nineteen than you would from being in a car accident. But if you add up car accidents, cancer, diabetes. Um, heart attacks, you know, on and on and on and on and on. Anaphylactic shock from a bee sting, whatever it might be. There's all kinds of things that could kill you out there. And there are all kinds of things that are killing people. But this notion that we lock down the world because now we have one additional threat added to the mix, which may or may not be a little worse than some of the others we've
0: experienced recently, is it, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So if we take this into the church world, uh, let's talk about churches. Do you think that churches are primarily being motivated by fear right now?
1: You know what? I've been reluctant to make that judgment for many months because I wanted to give a lot of room for people with different theological persuasions about the role of government in society for people with different views on the role of God's laws it relates to government, for different dynamics taking place within churches in terms of leadership structures. But I, th- I think it's time to say, yes, I do. As I've talked to other pastors and observed their comments, their responses to some of the things I've posted, as I've listened to a few other podcasts or messages by folks that are more inclined to lock their churches down. I've received calls from lay people, um, messages from lay people on Facebook Messenger, emails talking about the situation in their church. It does seem increasingly to be the case in my, my view that most of this is motivated by fear. I really think it is. Most of this is is motivated by fear. And of course, there's many, many reasons for that. But it certainly seems that fear, fearful pastors, fearful leaders are unfortunately more common than not. And their decisions are uh, largely based upon, at least
0: in part, uh, fear
1: of a variety of things that Mm -hmm. might happen
0: to them. Mm -hmm. And actually I have a list. So I have a list of, of common fears that we have thought of, uh, that might be worthwhile to discuss and even have you comment on. So one starting out would be the fear of public opinion, uh, in regards to the response, what would be your response to that kind of a fear?
1: I I think that fear, or at least see, see, there's a lot of men that will listen to this podcast and there, there's no way in God's green or some of them are ever going to admit to being afraid of anything. Right.
0: Because <laughs> we're guys, exactly. we're not, yeah. we're not afraid of 100%. anything.
1: <laughs> but um, how about deep, deep concern? Does that sound better? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a deep, deep concern or fear. I think it is fear of public opinion. Uh, you know, we have people uh, I heard of a Christian leader this week who said you know, he was very concerned about the fact that pro churches that are opposed to a lockdown, that have made a bold stance to stay open, aren't getting a lot of positive press. Um, they're not getting a lot of positive response in local newspapers. People are mostly hollering and screaming and yelling, you know, these churches are open. Well, first of all, I don't think that's actually true. Because generally it's only going to be the irate people that are going to write in anyway uh, most of these media uh, outlets have a bias towards whatever the government is says anyway so I, I question whether they would even if I wrote a letter in favor of you know what our church is doing or other churches are doing to remain open, I doubt we'd get uh, we'd be as likely to wind up in the newspaper. Um, even though you know maybe if it was my name attached because I've been prominent in this they might post it but I think if the average person wrote and they're more they're more likely to post dissenting opinions i i think but let's let's just say for a moment that 100 percent of the unbelieving world despised what we were doing and spoke out against it so what like so what how how on earth can a can a christian minister of the gospel possibly justify if if he has convictions that the church has to be open that christ is king over the church that zoom church is inadequate that this has been this has gone on long enough that the government has no, has no say over the, the ordinances the the worship and ministry of the church so what who cares what the world thinks i mean yeah do we all care on a certain level of course we care because every human being wants to be liked not hated I mean, I'd rather have public opinion on my side make my job a lot easier, but we, but to say that while we're the, uh, public opinion is not for us, so therefore, you know, we we should lock our churches is is what would be a good word for this? Uh, I, I was going to say um, borderline apostasy. That might be a little bit harsh.
0: <laughs> kind of reminds certainly- me of Galatians and Paul saying, "If I was seeking to please man, I couldn't please God." Yeah,
1: it's, it's compromise. Minimally, it's compromise where you – we really have to get beyond this idea of being man-pleasers. Like It doesn't – we we consider or, or we, we listen to what the world thinks about what we're doing because we want to minister to them. But it has no bearing on the decisions that we make in terms of biblical principles or categories that we believe to be true if we have those biblical categories. So, if someone says, well – Public opinions against the church, I don't really care about that because I'm just a pro lockdown guy anyway, fine. But if you sort of are like, well, I, I sort of like to be open, but everybody in my city hates me, that's a bad reason to stay closed.
0: Do you think that's tied at all to the the what would have been called the seeker sensitive church movement where public opinion or the opinion of the unbeliever to the church really mattered a lot?
1: When I was growing up, we grew up in some pretty conservative churches that weren't very culturally engaged. And there were a lot of things about, quote-unquote, the way we did church, even apart from the message, which is always offensive to the unbeliever. The way we did church that was very um, unconducive to bringing non-believers out or new believers into churches, It just it was just weird. Like the way we dressed, the way we talked, our liturgy— our expectations of people, it, it was just, there was a lot of weirdness, clickishness, and all that kind of thing, legalism. So after that, you know, in the 80s, I would say, especially into the late 80s, we started to see a lot of churches wake up and they're like, man, we got to connect more with culture. So, you know, a lot of churches change their music style, which is fine. I have no problem with that. Change their music style, um, maybe retooled the way the churches were configured as structures were more outreach oriented and on and on. But in the midst of all that, the seeker sensitive movement grew up, which, um, you know, I mean, theologically I have a problem with that. I mean, the Bible says nobody seeks after God, no one understands. So that's a problem. There's no such thing as a true seeker, even though we're called to, um, seek after God by nature, we don't. So there's a problem with the language, but that aside, This idea of doing church with a primary objective of appealing to spiritually lost people is unwise and it can lead to compromise. It doesn't always, but it can. And I would say my experience is that it usually does lead to compromise. So I think we do have now a few decades uh, under our belt where in the modern Canadian evangelical and Reformed churches, there is a certain desire to be appealing to spiritually lost people to worldly people. And we could talk maybe another podcast about how to do church in a way that honors God but is but doesn't put unnecessarily unnecessary roadblocks up for Christians or sorry non-Christians to attend. But in no way, shape, or form should we ever allow the opinions of the world to affect how we respond in obedience to God's express commands in Scripture. So that's my primary objection. Now, I, I know there's people out there that don't even think or they're at least questioning whether there's biblical commands to even meet or gather. Um. But those folks aside, I think they're still in the minority. Those of us that know that it's a command to meet, that know that in-person ministry is essential and fundamental to the life of the church, et cetera. For us to be dissuaded from doing that because our neighbors hate us or like to take pictures of us on Sunday or, you know, call the local rat line to rat us out. It's, it shouldn't be a factor in our decision making.
0: So what about, there's there's real real fears of lo- losing uh, our insurability or our charitable status, maybe our mortgage. We've had some people, uh, some churches in our province, even their their lenders threaten to call their mortgage, call their lines of credit. Those kind of fears. What about them? Well, we don't want to cast our pearls before swine. We don't want to needlessly
1: toss our resources away and waste them. But we should never be afraid of losing anything materially if we have convictions, biblical principles that guide us, that we believe to be true and right and righteous. So it's you want to be wise as a serpent. You don't want to needlessly throw your assets away. But in the history of the church, people have left countries. They've had their property confiscated. Some of them have had their lives taken because of their faith. And while, you know, if the insurance company calls, and they, they have called churches, there's an insurance company here in Ontario that did that to us, and they initially threatened to pull all of our insurance. And then they later agreed to continue to insure our building, but it was a basically a liability form we had to sign to, to remain insured. And they've done that to a friend's church too. When, when insurance companies call uh, and because they want to protect their butts and they want to make money, not pay out, and there might even be a desire to virtue signal in there, I don't know. When they do that, you know, we, it's good to have a reasonable conversation with them. Um, personally, I think those kinds of insurance companies should just get out of the church insurance business if they're going to try to strong arm people when they're acting on conviction. I really think they should, and I would advise them to do that. But if they are offering church insurance and threatening to pull it, having an uh, an opportunity to negotiate with them is wise. But at the end of the day, again, it doesn't matter. Go ahead. Take our insurance. We're not going to change our our viewpoint just because you're threatening to take our insurance. We're not going to be concerned about losing our charitable status. Um, That doesn't scare me in in any way, shape, or form. I don't think the government, if if they have half a brain, would ever do that for the simple reason that churches would go hyper-partisan. And then they would lose. So I can tell you straight up that if we were threatened and had our charitable status removed, we would bring uh, political candidates into our church that we like and we'd exclude all others. We'd become hyper-partisan. But historically, there was a separation of church and state. So the state didn't tax the church because that's a claim to authority over it. They didn't have authority over the church and the st- and the church spoke to political issues, but didn't go partisan in their politics. So there's there's a benefit to having that charitable status. If the state ignorantly were to snatch it away as some sort of penalty, it wouldn't change our view in any way, shape, or form. We'd probably just get more aggressive, actually, in terms of the way we did things. Um, in terms of mortgages, yeah, I mean, we there was a church in in Ontario here that their uh, credit union, which is supposed to be a Christian Mennonite credit union. Um, called and threatened. Actually, they didn't threaten. They just said they're calling their mortgage. Some Christians just came in and paid it off. That's not to say that that will necessarily happen, but um, God will provide. Mm -hmm. So first of all, God will provide. We need to be reminded of that. Uh, We should push back. The more churches that push back, the less of a threat they can uh, wield. And at the end of the day, if they take it all, including our lives, so be it. If we are operating on convictions, then we shouldn't be afraid of losing everything that we have because apart from God, we have nothing anyway. Ownership is the enemy of stewardship. We're not owners. We're stewards. Everything we have is God's. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. If he wants to take it away because we've responded in obedience to him, so be it.
0: We've heard uh, we've heard pastors even locally say things like we're not afraid of the fine, we're not afraid of getting fines. Personally as a pastor, I can say there is a part of me that is a you know concerned deeply concerned about fines. Uh, now that you've received a fine, I think yours was from 10 to hundred thousand yet to be set. Um, what's that feel like and what would you speak to someone about the the fear of fines? Well I know
1: of two churches that have specifically said, we, we'd like to open, but we just can't imagine paying the fines. So there's no question about the fact that some churches out there, and probably more than we know, because those are just two that I've heard actually say it, and I'm not talking about people in the church have said it, those are elders, an elder and a pastor that have said that, um, that there's a fear of paying fines, and that's why they they just couldn't afford it. They, they didn't. They didn't stay open because of that. I think that's a pretty bad reason (laughs) to keep your church closed. Uh, Again, it speaks to this idea of allowing the world to use financial threats to shape your decisions as a church. If you don't nip it in the bud now, they'll just come back at you, right? So uh, they're going to charge you for preaching a certain way, for not supporting certain cultural ideologies, for not acting the way they want you to act people the world loves to threaten and penalize people financially because it hurts and and that's just not not biblically justifiable to keep your church closed because you're afraid of losing money I, i actually have this sense and this is just anecdotal but i mean i've been chatting with a lot of different churches this year I have the sense that the churches that are doing the best financially are the churches that are wide open because there's people tend to, and this isn't a reason to stay open, but I'm just speaking the truth here. People tend to want to be part of something that's bold and courageous. And then there's also people who might actually be in favor of the church's closing, but they're probably not giving as much because it's like, well, we're not doing as much, you know, we're not running our day camps. There's, you know, we're not doing as much, um, Social ministry in the community, um, you know, even our missionaries overseas, a lot of them are locked down. So what's the point of giving so much? Um, so to me, you asked me about my personal situation. I, I think I've always been fairly good with my money. Obviously, I don't, I don't want to be penalized. I don't want people taking my money or the church's money to pay fines. Um, when you first get a ticket, it does hurt a little bit. And it's just kind of a bit of a shock to your system, but <laughs> I don't know how else to say this. You just kind of acclimatize to it. You know, you get your stapler out, and if they start flowing in, you just start stapling them together, right? And if at some point, I I, I think that there's a, a pretty high chance that a lot of these will be dismissed, but I wouldn't bank on that. I wouldn't go up. Uh, so if you're listening here and you're like, okay, yeah, we're gonna open up because I think we're gonna get away with it. I wouldn't bank on that. Uh, you should probably be prepared to pay whatever, including losing your house, including losing your church. Again, if you're not prepared to do that, if you are convicted, the church needs to be open. You probably shouldn't be calling yourself a solo follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, We we probably also need to be reminded that it's, it's easier to lose what you don't have. So when people, you think of the, the, even the different scenario, but the widow's two mites, right? She didn't have much. So for her to give it away was pretty sacrificial, but people that tend to have a lot of money, the, the rich people, they tend to be a little less willing to give their funds away because they're, they're almost more in love with it. We just tend to be more in love with what we have. And most Canadian churches today are fairly affluent, so they don't want to give away what they have, you know, they enjoy their buildings and their structures, but we can do it for the cause of Christ and we should
0: be willing to do that. It is interesting how a fine kind of puts a dollar figure on your convictions, essentially.
1: Yeah, that's a
0: wise way of putting it. So we just have that reality that we have to uh, live, live with at the end of the day. How about the fear of having a clear word from God or fear of not being nuanced in their approach? Well, I think this is where a lot of guys,
1: I think, are still stuck. They're like, I I kind of think the church should be open. I kind of think the lockdowns are a little too heavy-handed. I am concerned about some of the things that are going on, but I'm just, I'm just not sure. I'm just not, I'm not sure what the right thing to do is. Um, I heard of a pastor recently who was in a board meeting and some of his guys were, you know, like, Yes, let's open. Some of his guys were, no, we shouldn't open. And when they asked the pastor, he just said, like, no comment. I'm just neutral on it. Now, this is after, what, 14 months? Um, that That's not leadership. Neutrality is a decision to stay closed. Hmm. And... I think some people are in church cultures where they have this perception they sort of have to always sit on the fence or or walk in the middle lane, so to speak, that that's leadership. I can tell you people despise you for that. <laughs> um, that's not the kind of leadership that people will follow. It may give a certain small group of passive personalities comfort. But I think that's a critical leadership mistake. And I would also just say, if you're a minister of the gospel, and which means you have to have a mind competent enough to dissect scripture and speak into the lives of your people and apply biblical truth and give counsel and give direction to the church and guard the church against wolves, and you've had 14 months to think about this, and you've probably had conversations, if you're like me, about this topic every single day, and you still don't know where you stand on it, you're not a leader. You're you're just not a leader. That might hurt you. You might be a good preacher. So preach in the church, but stop being an elder and a pastor of your church. You're not a leader. Let the the church use your gifts as a preacher teacher, but you're not a leader. As leaders, we're called to oversee the church, and that means we need to make hard decisions. We're called to guard the church. Your church is hurting. You have to speak into those situations. If you've genuinely thought through the issues and you have a, kind of a nuanced middle ground approach, articulate it to your people. But this idea that you're going to sort of just not decide anything after 14 months and let other people duke it out, people will over time despise you for that. They won't trust you. Um, it's Now, having said all that, I, I think we do have a clear word from the Lord. Um, you think of Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, where it says Christ is the head of the body of the church. Christ is the head of the body of the church. So if a, if a leadership team decides that there's imminent death that's going to take place in their congregation or people are dying by the droves or whatever in their congregation – and they have to shut down their church or suspend their ministry, adjust their ministry. That's their choice. And if they've made that unencumbered by government edicts, fine. No problem. That's your decision. You are the under shepherds of your local church. But if you're making, if you think your church should be open, but you're bowing to the premier, or you know, your, your premier, your local magistrate, and you're closing your church contrary to your own conscience because that's what they're telling you to do, you have relinquished Christ's lordship over the church. I don't know how else you could see it any other way. You've relinquished Christ's ultimate lordship over the ministry, the sacraments, the, the preaching of God's word over the local assembly of believers. Um, so if you don't have a clear word from the Lord, um. Just to, to summarize this, 14 months in, you're not a leader, and I know right well there's going to be people out there right now as they're hearing this thinking, well, that sounds arrogant. Well, take it as you like. It's just a fact. I'm going to tell you the truth, and you're not a leader, and you need to deal with that. You're not a leader. Uh, secondly, a neutral decision is a decision in favor of lockdown, okay? that you're, you're making a decision, so you might as well just put your thumb down or just say, no, I'm not. I'm not, not going to open my church. Um, in terms of being nuanced, you know, it's it's interesting. I I know a fella who's who's um, a Christian, has been a Christian for a long time, and he's uh, he's got a good theological mind. But when you listen to him talk, he's so concerned about the nuances of things. It's always like, wow, we need to consider this, and we need to consider that. And while this is one opinion, this is one opinion, and this is another opinion you start to listen to him and it's, he's an interesting thinker, but at the end of the day, he concludes nothing for you. He doesn't help you at all. He's, he's just like, he's almost like a guy. Uh, it's like, it's like going to a restaurant and you know, you, you get a menu and, um, you're like, well, what should I eat? You know, uh, well, what do you want? Well, is there anything you recommend? Well, we can go take you to the refrigerator and open the refrigerator wide up and you can see all the food we have, but yeah, we don't make recommendations here. Well, so you don't have a specific opinion, like, is there a particular meal you think I would really enjoy? And, you know, is there something that you you think is maybe extra special? You know, we're celebrating a special event, a special occasion. Is there maybe a, a dish, a, a certain specialty you have? No, we don't want to make that decision for you. He's kind of like that. And he's, He's an older guy, but it's it's all middle of the road mush. Well, when push comes to shove, he has made a decision. He's made a decision that is on the pro lockdown side. it's that's the decision. A neutral decision is a decision to the contrary. and so I, I would just say don't don't get stuck in that kind of mucky middle ground confused thinking, go back to the two fundamental questions that I raised, I think a podcast or two ago, wrestle to the ground, the question, who is the Lord of the church? And when you've got that one down, what is the relationship of the state to the church? And when you wrestle those two to the ground and many of my podcasts, hopefully will help you with that as well as other material that's out there. You'll you have your answer. And I hope your answer is I'm
0: going to open my church starting this Sunday. (laughs) That would be awesome. Uh, fear of losing people. We've, we've definitely experienced this fear or seen, or I should say, seen this fear because it's a reality. People will leave no matter what. Uh, so what should we do about that fear?
1: Well, we lose people all the time. I've been passionate this church for 20 years. We've lost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that have come to this church, called it their home and left. They've moved away. They've had doctrinal disputes. They get offended by someone. And we've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more come. That's life. When you take a stance on things, you're going to offend people. Every one of those people that I get to know and that leave, admittedly, take a little piece of my heart with them. It does. I don't want to sound trite. It does hurt. But over the years, I've learned that I should never assume I'm going to pastor anybody for all my life. Uh, People will come and go for different reasons. I'm responsible to pastor the people that sit before me on any given day and any given month and any given year and to do my best with that and to love them, encourage them, and to pastor them with a cupped hand, not a closed fist. And some of them will stay with you for decades and some of them will move on. So, again, that's the principle but anecdotally, uh, churches that have remained open are, I think, without exception, growing. And while churches that are closed might boast of their you know, online viewership, I don't think they're doing very well. Um, I think they're losing people, they're hemorrhaging people, and some of their best people who are aware of what's going on in culture. But even if... Were abandoned by everyone. Was not our Lord abandoned by His complete group of disciples? You know, at his at His crucifixion. Fortunately, many of them were later restored. I think there will be some people that have left churches like ours that are going to come back later and repent and um, you know re be restored to fellowship because they're going to realize that um, you know we were right and uh, the Lordship of Christ is is paramount. And we have to guard that at all costs. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, you know, our perspective is that if people just sort of think they're gonna slide back into the church and um, not recommit to the absolute lordship of Christ over his church, they're probably gonna have a hard time fellowshipping here, but you know, we also wanna be, you know, forgiving and loving to those that may one day
0: return. So this kind of brings a, a parallel question about unity. Uh, Because a lot of fear ties to being ununited and maybe you could disunited, disunified, uh, get the right word there. But could you talk for a moment, how how hard should we chase after unity? If there's somebody in our church, for example, that leaves because of a very different view on how we should respond to these government restrictions, how hard would you chase? Can you give some wisdom maybe to leaders that are dealing with that?
1: Well, ideally, if someone's going to leave they should be coming and talking to you. Um, it's, it's not appropriate for people to leave churches and then they're, you know, they're sitting at home and five, six weeks goes by and they start talking to their friend and they say, and I've heard this so many times, oh, you know, I left ABC church and no one's called me since. Oh, did you talk to them? No, but it's, it's almost like this childishness. Have you noticed that I've left? <laughs> Have you noticed I'm not here? And if you don't notice it, then it's somehow your fault. It's their own, the onus is upon the person leaving to communicate to the leadership of the church they've left why they're leaving and how they're leaving and all that kind of thing. Um, so in terms of guarding unity, um, everybody in our church is in a small group. So no matter what church you're in, whether it's through small groups or just by virtue of the fact you have a small group, there should be some relationships and some connectedness there. So the people that are closest to you and connected with you have the first and primary responsibility to have those conversations. And maybe there's just some clarity that needs to be offered. You know, maybe a person's confused or they misread something. I talked to a good buddy in our church one day and he was kind of not excited about some of the decisions that we were made and, we had made and i said hey brother have you listened to my last four podcasts no have you read my articles no did you hear that sermon i preached no like but you still disagree yes okay well just go listen to what i'm talking about i can't preach an individual sermon to every person each week listen to my public teaching and preaching and if you still have a problem, come back and talk about it. But a lot of people just don't do their homework, right? They just see one tweet or one Facebook post that you put out assume they totally understand your mindset. So people, we want to do our best to try to educate people. That truth is what ultimately brings unity. Um, at the same time, when I, I view this as a battle. So in times of peace, you have time, you have opportunity to build infrastructure, to build relationships you know, to set systems in place that will allow you to get through periods of great crises or war. So when, when armies go off to war, they, there's obviously people back building tanks, making ammo, all that kind of stuff. But the primary responsibility of the troops right now is to go to battle and the generals need to be out there strategizing and whatnot. Right now, most pastors that are kind of in the in the heat of these cultural wars and in in under great pressure and stress to keep their churches open and all that kind of stuff, like I don't have time to be running around calling people that haven't showed up, that are a wall that have left the church. I don't have time for that, and I think it's it would be unwise for me to use my time doing that. You're just going to lose people, and you have to. As painful it is accept that I don't even hardly have time to get to know all the new people that are coming to our church. I, you know, I get up on Sunday and I preach, I'm looking around, I don't know how, maybe not half, but I don't know a sizable number of the people. What we can do is we can obviously pray for unity. We can continue to preach as clearly as we can communicate publicly, encourage, you know, small group leaders and family members to have those conversations. But I don't think uh, it's wise for, the higher up leaders in the church to primarily be investing their time in chasing down people who are leaving or want to leave. I think it's more important to be a principled leader, fight, uh, fight the fight in the front lines, develop your leaders to fight with you and, um, you know, make yourself available for, you know, public comment and public debate and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm.
0: So uh, another fear that's real for many people is of their own personal health or of the pastor's health
1: well I, I I have this sense that the older the pastor generally speaking the more fearful they are of opening now maybe that's just a cultural thing maybe they are they're wiser they're not as willing to pick a fight they you know they're they've just kind of been in the fray for too long but I think every pastor needs to to think about, this very simple question. Am I making this decision for my benefit or for the benefit of my people? Am I making this decision to close, for example, for my benefit or for the benefit of the people? And you have to really think deeply about that question. So if you're, if you're, um, if you have a health issue, let's say you're a diabetic or you have, um, you know, you're you're well advanced in years and you have some respiratory issues and you're kind of, a little worked up about getting this virus and it, admittedly it might not be great for you to get it. Um, but you've decided to close your church to protect yourself. I think that's irresponsible leadership. Likewise, if you're a younger guy and you're like, oh, I'll never get this virus. People my age don't die. And so we're just going to you know, charge the gates of hell and keep my church open. But you're playing it off as a biblical conviction, but really it's just because you're not personally afraid of dying. You're, you might not be, communicating a great deal of sensitivity to the older people or the vulnerable people in your congregation. (laughs) So the best place to be is to be balanced. If you're older, make sure you have younger people around you who you're getting input from. If you're younger, make sure you have older people around that you're getting input advice from. Uh, The way we've kind of handled it as a church is I'm sort of right in the middle, right? I'm kind of a middle-aged guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just, I mean, I don't, in any way, shape, or form, like the idea of dying, but I'm not afraid of death. I'm just not. I don't know. Maybe it's my cultural upbringing. I think my parents are kind of, my dad in particular is kind of wired that way. It's just kind of, my my dad's just always kind of communicated to me, when you die, you die. Now, he was a firefighter. He's in the ambulance for years. He was used to picking up dead bodies and seeing guts and gore and all that kind of thing. So I think I just picked up some of that from him. I'm just not afraid of dying. Like, if God sort of said to me, Aaron, this is your last day, I don't think it would really rattle my cage. Now, if you said the way you're going to go is pretty gruesome, well, I, I, nobody likes to thought of dying a gruesome death on a ventilator in a hospital hacking up a lung. So I, I, I'm not I'm not suggesting that I'm super excited about the way that I will die, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of dying. And I have resurrection hope. So what am I afraid of? In some ways... I would welcome it because I know what's on the other side. Um, so I'm kind of in the middle ground, mid, those middle years. But I would say to pastors, if if you're, let's say, an elderly gentleman and you have comorbidities and you're super concerned about it, it wouldn't be a bad idea for you to maybe pass off some of your leadership for a period of time to younger, healthier people so that for the sake of your people, they can still be ministered to robustly incarnationally etc and then if you're speaking to it publicly uh just be conscious of how your age group and your place in life may actually shape your theology and approach to it i i just tend to see in general a lot of the older guys promoting the vaccines encouraging their churches to lock down a lot of the younger guys not promoting the vaccines (laughs) and wanting their churches to stay open. There's a lot of exceptions to the rule, but that tends to be the case. So just be aware of how your your place in life actually affects how you lead your church.
0: That's good. The uh, Another fear that's real, police presence, tickets, um, specifically just, yeah, the, the, the presence of official opposition uh, to what you're doing.
1: We uh, want to posture ourselves as respectable citizens I have had at least one pretty awesome opportunity to minister to a local police officer who's not a Christian, who I think is very respectful of our position. Uh, Likewise, you know, we've had some police officers come to our church that are, you know, a little ornery, shall we say. One of them even called us a, a choice word that was a little bit shocking So we've had that, so you're going to get different personalities, just like in every occupation or vocation, you're going to get that. Um, I think that there's more police officers out there. I I think actually the majority, I I would go so far as to say the majority, way over 50% are sick and tired of this, think it's uh, draconian, are not interested in enforcement, And out of that, I think a hefty number actually agree with our position. But people are people. And if they're getting paychecks and the paychecks require that they issue tickets or show up on site to respond to public complaints, they'll probably do that. So that's just my view of the, the attitudes that most police officers have today. I I wouldn't be super concerned about them showing up. Use it as an opportunity to speak the truth. Use it as an opportunity to remind them of their charter oaths. Use it as an opportunity to minister to them and let the chips fall where they may. If they love you because of it, great. If they despise you because of it, oh well. We don't live in a country at this point where, you know, unless you're pulling a gun or th- making threats, they're, they're not going to throw you to the ground and dive on you and, and cuff you, at least not yet. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't happen. I wouldn't be as concerned about that. I mean, obviously we want to be respectful of people in authority. And if a person's wearing uniform and, you know, they got a badge, we want to be respectful. But um, I have a sense that uh, even people that disagree with us, have a certain respect for us, or or at least will in time have a certain respect for us, because at least they know we're not cowards and we are, you know, acting on the principles that we actually claim to to believe in.
0: One final one I was thinking about is the just fear of bad witness. Um, we've heard that one quite a bit. We obviously as Christians our number one goal is to bring glory to God. So therefore, the number one fail would be to bring dishonor to God. Uh, to bring bring bad repute um, and there can be a real fear of that. How would you respond to that? Every faithful
1: witness for Jesus Christ since the beginning of time that's you know recorded in scripture uh, without expe- without r- really any exception, face some sort of opposition, demonic opposition or human opposition and they remain faithful even in the face of opposition. It's a very strange, Place to be in church history for a Christian to think that faithful witness is equivalent to public applause. Who cares what they're saying in the newspaper? Who cares if people agree with you or disagree with you? Since when do we determine what public witness is based upon who shows up at our church and applauds us for what we've done? Um, it's completely irrelevant. In fact, the opposite. If we're if you believe in spiritual warfare and in the you know work of work of the devil in our world, the world's lostness and sin and depravity, we shouldn't expect anything other than opposition. So, um, faithful witness is fundamentally obedience to God's word. Faithful witness is not receiving the applause of men.
0: Very clear. Uh, what biblical advice would you give to overcome fear? We've talked about all these different fears. Now, what what advice?
1: Well, I'll circle back to the beginning. We got to go back to the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of um, the gospel hope that we have that, you know, Christ is Lord over life and death. And ultimately, when we continue to remain true to God's calling upon our lives, even when we might be putting our own lives at risk, that demonstrates that we actually believe in the resurrection hope that we preach. We also need to remind ourselves of the sovereignty of God over life and death. Uh, If you think about it, fear is, for the most part, kind of useless. I mean, it might be a warning uh, flag if we're putting ourselves unnecessarily at risk. But to live ourselves with crippling fear, you know, I'm thinking of the people who haven't gone out for a year, drive around in their vehicles, double masked, um, order everything in, have disconnected from their family and friends. They've essentially chosen to live in a state of dying in order to not die. They're not living life anymore. They need a healthy reminder of God's sovereignty over life and death. Uh, special message to the elderly, by the way. I, I, um, I have a lot of respect for people that are older than me. Uh, a lot of people have really blessed me over the years that are older than me. But a special word to the elderly, be cautious, appropriately cautious, but don't throw away the last few years of your life in order to try to extend your life, either so be appropriately cautious. But if you're an elderly person, and you know you're, let's say you're in your 80s or maybe even your 90s, and you've decided, you know, you're, you're way past three score and ten, you're, you're you're past sort of God's general allotment for humanity. But you're staying home. You've disconnected yourself from people. You've disconnected yourself from your church. What are you gaining? A, a couple extra years of isolation uh, to, to mitigate against the possibility of dying of a virus. Um, I I just find that very, a very sad way to end your life. If I was a, an elderly man, uh, and I knew that there was a virus going around that tended to attack elderly people, I'd be a little more cautious than I am now, but I wouldn't hunker down at home. I'd want to continue to maintain relationships with my church family, my friends, and to minister to people and be a useful tool for the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remind ourselves of 1 Corinthians 15 of resurrection hope. We have the surety of resurrection hope. That's not going to be taken away no matter what. Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, conquered the grave, and his life is now our life. Um, And then I would just say... One of the verses I included in my sermon on Sunday was from Revelation twenty one eight, And you should really should check that out because there's a list there of damnable sins. You know, the most vile of the vile sins that people could commit that are marks of abject unbelief. And they include murder and sexual immorality and practicing sorcery and lying and idolatry. But at the beginning of all, that is cowardice and unbelief and this is cowardice towards the things of God, taking a stand for the things of God, being weak in your witness. So think about that. Cowardice, fear, is actually a damnable sin. So if we are not taking a stand for the things we believe to be true, if we're not taking a stand for God's uh, to obey God's clear directives to his people, and we're doing that because we're afraid of fines or virus or public opinion we are actually committing a damnable sin meaning that that might actually indicate we're not true believers at all Mm. which is a scary thing so deal with cowardice and this crippling fear before the lord it it's not right it's not healthy it's not god honoring and in fact it may be uh, indicative of a life that's not really been transformed by the gospel of jesus christ
0: well, thank you for that. That's very, very helpful to uh, consider fear. Now, as a kind of side bonus discussion, I know you've told me you've received several messages from lay people asking what to do if their pastor won't open their church. Uh, what what advice would you give to them in closing?
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting place to be because I have probably more than most pastors resisted Um the temptation to try to pastor people outside of my church. <laughs> and um, many people have come to our church over the years, from other churches, but I don't lure them. I don't, I don't try to like talk them into it. I'm not a church salesman. I never, never, I just never have done that. I let them step our way and then we have conversations. But now it's strange. is so I'm getting message, like primarily emails or texts or messages, written messages from people in various parts of Ontario in particular saying, you know, I know you, I don't know you, but I read this or saw you do this and I'm in a church and I'm frustrated. My, my leadership continues to lock our church down and I disagree with it. What do I do? So this is the mm-hmm. question really you're asking. So I, I would just make it pretty simple. Um, there's two different scenarios. So one would be your leadership has decided to close their church and they've given you reasons why they want to close the church. So that would be scenario A. Scenario B would be they've closed their church and they just don't seem to have any reasons or they haven't articulated them to you. So there's just sort of some passivity or some confusion there. Um. So if it's the first situation, you already know their reasons. So what you would want to do, the first step is go have a conversation with them and challenge those reasons, try to understand those reasons and either sway them to your side or... um have let them sway you to their side Um, so that would be the first thing you want to have a conversation if they haven't given you any reasons then you sort of got to add an extra step and say look I don't understand what your position is can you articulate your position and wait for them to articulate your position for a reasonable time a couple weeks or whatever and then go and have the debate right as to whether or not you agree or disagree and try to sway each other and convince each other to the other person's side so first thing would be talk. That's mm-hmm. basically talk. Have the conversation. If it doesn't go well or you can't find uh, agreement, um, you you basically have three options. Uh, you can just endure it, and just put up with it, depending on how upset you are about it. You know, meet on Zoom every week. You can temporarily go to another church. Just say, okay, well, if we're not going to open, I'm going to drive an hour or two to some church that is open. Or you can permanently leave the church. Those are your three options. And only you can decide that based upon your convictions. Overarching all that, you want to pray about it. Pray for your leaders. That's biblical. Try to honor them. Try to understand them. But at the end of the day, if you are in a situation where you can't convince them to open or you just feel really convicted that the church must gather, which to me I don't understand how Christians couldn't arrive at that conclusion, but some have. Then, you know, you need to move on. You need to be spiritually fed. It's unacceptable after a year to still have your church locked down. It's unacceptable. And many medical people <laughs> agree with that. So go to a church elsewhere, if you you might so a temporary departure would probably probably be when you know, there's still good camaraderie and maybe you think their reasons are bad, but you can see why they think that and they're well-intentioned and et cetera. You might temporarily leave and then come back. A permanent, when you would permanently leave is when you've sort of lost confidence in their ability to lead and to understand the times. And if you have concerns about where this might lead for future decisions or government lockdowns or government edicts, and you just don't have confidence in the leadership of your church, then it would be best for them and best for you uh, to move on. Hmm. Well,
0: that's a good word. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate your time. Just want to remind those of our listeners that we've joined the Fight, Laugh, Feast network and that you can download their app Fight, Laugh, Feast and find Leadership Now as well as a growing list of other podcasts from across North America there. Uh, And just want to remind you as well to share this episode, rate the podcast, uh, subscribe if you haven't already, and to make sure that you tune back next week for another episode of Leadership Now.